Psalm 32, so it's a real switch from where we were in the New Testament, and I'm going to read it, uh, and then I'm going to introduce it, have a, a rather extended introduction to it, and then we're going to dive into the text. So this is Psalm 32 again. A maskil of David. Blessed is the one, now, oh, excuse me, I am reading from the ESV, that's what I carry, and so uh, they're both literally based translations. You'll see, you'll see words get reversed, word order gets reversed, there'll be a different word used, which is basically a synonym. So don't be put off by that, and because I, I don't want you to miss following along. And I'll be giving the verses as we go through it when we teach this morning. A maskil of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Silah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding who must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Beautiful psalm, isn't it? Now, in considering this as an introduction to Psalm, it's noteworthy that when Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, the author of the Confessions in the City of God, uh, whose writings influenced almost every sphere of Western thought, it's significant that, that Augustine cherished this Psalm as his very favorite. That's something to note of this, this great mind, uh, this... Uh, 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 great theologian way, way back in time. And Augustine read it continually throughout his life, and at the end of his life, he had it inscribed uh, on the wall by his bed so he could contemplate it uh, and, and use it as an aid for confessing his sin. So for him, this psalm was an essential for his spiritual life. I think that really frames it wonderfully. And you'll note when I read it this morning, it's called a maskil. Well, a maskil, uh, there are only 13 of those in the, in the, in the Psalter 
of 150 psalms, 13 are maskels. And the designation maskel has been thought to mean variously a meditation, a skillful song, a song of understanding. And I, and I think all those senses are appropriate, but the general idea seems to be a teaching psalm, a, uh, a, a sung meditation to instruct you. That, that's, that's what it is. And then another thing you probably heard is was read this morning that I read Selah three times. There are three of them in the psalm, which likely means pause or crescendo or musical interlude. Actually, not sure exactly what it means, but it has something to do with musical accompaniment, and it has to do with emphasis. So I think we can understand that Selah means take a good note of what has been said, and pause and reflect on it. So you see those places to pause and reflect in the psalm. And then, keeping that in mind, also know that Psalm 32 is one of seven, quote, penitential psalms. Now, uh, there's no title over any psalm that says penitential psalms. But there are certain ones that seem relevant to repentance and forgiveness for instance, Psalm 51, that's a penitential psalm. This is probably the other most famous penitential psalm, but if you want to list the other ones, there is Psalm 6 and Psalm 38 and Psalm 102 and Psalm 130 and Psalm 142, if you just wanted to note those, those things. It's not a biblical designation, but I think it's a fitting fitting for this, and that's what it's been called since ancient times. In fact, this is really fascinating. When Galileo was imprisoned by the Inquisition of Rome for teaching the Copernican view of the universe, he was forced to read all of those seven penitential psalms once a week for seven years. And his jailers thought that that would cause him to repent of his views, but the psalm only served to elevate and console his soul, because this psalm leads to spiritual uh, correctness, not political correctness. And then, because it's a penitential psalm, Psalm 32 was written by King David after his repentance under the scathing accusation of Nathan when Nathan said to him, you are the man. He was the man for committing adultery with another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then covering up the pregnancy by arranging for the murder of Uriah, her husband. I mean heinous, awful, awful sins. Ah, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I think the story's unbearable. I really do. It is an awful story. And these heinous sins... The king did not repent of for a year. And we know that David wrote Psalm 32 because it says, when it says it's a masculine of David right at the beginning, it tells you. I mean, that's been incorporated as part of biblical text for years. And it perfectly accords with his misery, his awful misery before his repentance and the joy that he experienced. And not only that, 
Romans 4 tells us that Psalm 32, 1 and 2 were written by David. So, I mean, this is a psalm of David. This is a biographical, uh, hortatory uh, psalm. And, and today, this great psalm tugs from the heartstrings of our hearts because it captures perfectly the experience of everyone here. Every believer in his or her struggle with sin as well as your experience of joy when you repent. Not that you've done those sins, but I'm talking about in dealing with sin. And no wonder Augustine loved it. And the mental picture I have, just a mental picture because he had to be an old guy, uh, is uh, the age-bearded great man sleeping under the Latin inscription of Psalm 32 so he could see it at... uh, the last light of day and dawn's early light and reflect on it for his own soul. He knew what he was. You know, profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast. You know, he knew what he was. Um, And what it does is it points the way to forgiveness and blessedness and Part of the introduction here, and this is the last part of it, it has two natural divisions, really easy. Verses 1 through 5, the first five verses are biography. So they're narrative, they're biography. And then 6 through 11 are uh, um, his uh, challenge to all of us to confession and repentance. That's, that's how he does it. So it's easy to see how it's divided. And this, this is an ageless psalm. I like to say it is as old as sin and it is as fresh as grace, brothers and sisters. It's full of grace. And what it does, are there any questions? I, that's the introduction. Anything about that? You probably, you probably don't have any questions. You go, I don't think I do, but... Uh, if you have one, that'd be fine. Take off my glasses so I can see. Okay. Um, it, 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 uh, so we're going to talk about his experience in verses 1 through 5. And the psalmist begins his story with an initial shout of praise over his having been forgiven from the terrible threefold grip of sin. And you see it in verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'll read it again. And I want you to note, now I don't know how the, the NAS translates this, but uh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Is it translated that way? Okay. Whose sin is covered. Is that translated that way? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Same? There does not impute iniquity. Not impute iniquity. So you can all, we can all follow along. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay. Now, what what happens there is King David uses three separate words to describe the full dimensions of evil, as we just noted. Transgression in verse 1, sin in verse 1, iniquity in verse 2. And those three nuances stress one thing, his total, in an unrepentant state, absolute domination by sin. 
He uses transgression to emphasize his willful act of rebellion against God's authority because whatever sin is, it is ultimately rebellion against God. Transgression, rebellion. Next, he uses the word sin to indicate not only that he is a rebellion to God, but that he missed the mark. And this is the great picture of a hunter taking aim with his bow and having the arrow fall short. And his life in his sin fell miserably short of what God, disappointingly short of what God called him to. Everything in his life fell short. And then that third term, iniquity, completes that terrible triad of sin uh, with the idea of crookedness and criminality. That's what iniquity means. David's contorted soul evoked twisted character and criminal conduct. Wow. And it was. And you look at those horrific abuses of Bathsheba and Uriah, and they showcase each of those three dimensions. As Israel's king and psalmist, David intimately knew God and his law. Do you know that he had a handwritten copy of the Torah that he did himself? I mean, he knew the law, and it was blatant rebellion against God's law, and his life then fell miserably short and Criminality twisted his soul. I mean, he throbbed with guilt. Here's a man absolutely dominated by his sin. Absolutely. Well, this is very interesting because then here in verses 1 and 2, as David begins his penitential psalm, he celebrates the forgiveness of his deep sin through three corresponding deliverance terms. And let me see, Pastor, if they're there. It would be forgiven. Is that in there? Uh, You know, forgiven. Your wife says it is. Covered. And counts no iniquity. Okay, so we've got the same, same translation. His translation, his transgression is forgiven. That is, is literally been lifted up and taken away. His rebellion and willful transgression is utterly forgiven. Next, his sin is covered. He'd been frantically trying to cover his iniquity, what he'd done to Bathsheba and what he'd done to Uriah like a grasping naked man. It was there. He was repeatedly covering it like with a fig leaf only to find it uncovered. Shame and fear of exposure dominated his waking moments, even his dreams. But blessed be God, God covered his sin. And then thirdly or lastly, he's become a man against whom the Lord counts or imputes no iniquity. Uh, No iniquity is God's way of dealing with sin and anticipates what the New Testament teaches, that God credits or counts as righteous those through faith and does not count their sins against them. That is the explicit argument, as we're going to see, of Romans 4, verses 4 through 8, where Paul quotes this very psalm. I mean, this is phenomenal. God did more for the psalmist and not count his iniquity against him. God counted him as righteous. I mean, you have to, you think what he did. Think what he did. So awful. I mean, you have to say, what? Premeditated, adulterer, 
premeditated murderer, a righteous man? Yes, by God's grace. No wonder David is so exuberant. Uh, this, is, this is absolutely amazing. His terrifying dimensions of sin have been obliterated by the, transgress, uh, the, the transcending dimensions of that three-part forgiveness. Now, you look at verses 1 and 2. Notice that he uses the word blessed twice here in the beginning. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. Here's what they are. They are ecstatic plurals. Literally, it is the blessednesses of he or the blessednesses of the man. The blessednesses of the man is a doubling of delight. So his soul dances in ecstatic delight. And well, he should be ecstatic for being forgiven of those awful sins. You say, why is he so exuberant? And I'll tell you this, it's because his forgiveness is not a sham. This is not a psychological Dr. Phil self-forgiveness. It's not the communal absolution from Oprah, the high priest of American culture. The terms forgiven, covered, counts not, means real forgiveness. Not phony forgiveness, real forgiveness. And along with forgiveness, the king's guilt, huge, pulsing, throbbing guilt was gone. Gone. And to top it all off, he'd been delivered from his soul's deceit, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This may shock some of you, although if you live very long, it may not shock you, but in my long pastor at a college church, I once had an adulterous sitting elder on the Council of Elders whose soul was so wrapped in self-deceit, self-deceit, that the very day that he was discovered to be having an adulterous liaison with a prostitute in Washington, D.C., that very day that he was discovered, he didn't know he'd been discovered, he flew home to Chicago to host our church's evangelistic banquet. You get that? I mean, unbelievable. We found out the day after the banquet. Because you see, deceit, self-deceit is the currency of sin. There is relentless deceit in unconfessed sin. David had been living in self-deceit. And this kind of sin involves self-deceit and delusion about your own soul. That kind of sin involves public deceit, horrific domestic deceit, lying to your nearest and dearest, lying to your spouse, lying to your children, lying to your parents, guile, lying, cover-up, hypocrisy, 
insincerity and to top it all off with this elder pious cant, pious language. Those of us who are in sin and will not confess it, and will not confess it, know what the psalmist is talking about. It's an orgy of deceit. An ode of joy to come clean. Real forgiveness. Deliverance from guilt. Well, David continues revealing his heart as he describes the guilt that his unconfessed sin had unleashed in him in verses 3 and 4. You know, a metaphor is when you you take something that uh, is concrete and uh, like a metaphor, like uh, Pastor and I were talking about vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the Hebrew word is metaphorical for vanity, which is vapor. You know, vapor of vapors. And we say vanity of vanities. Well, vanity is not a metaphor. Vapor is, and you can picture vapor, can't you? Just a fog, just smoke going away, vapor of vapors. Well, this is full of metaphorical language as he reaches for every way possible to describe the misery of his unconfessed sin in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." So first of all, you get guilt's misery. When I kept silent, listen to this, my bones wasted away. Literally, they became old through my groaning. It is even better, literally roaring. Isn't that beautiful? Roaring all day. To borrow George Eliot's phrase, unconfessed sins produce a Guilty roar on the other side of silence. When George Eliot said that, she said, she said, if we, if we could hear it, we would die from what we heard. I mean, she really reached for it. One man described his unconfessed sins to me, saying that when he stood in front of the mirror each morning, he would moan as he shaved with inward loathing as he looked at his face his own face. And the physical effect is the feeling of desiccated bones, of a porosis of the soul, aching rot inside. That's what David is saying. That is how he felt. He reached for every word to tell us how miserable it was. Secondly, Along with all that ache, he experienced perpetual affliction. The beginning of verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You know what? When God's hand presses our guilt, it is a grace because all of life becomes like lead. Like your feet are stuck in mud. Leaden affliction. When there's no confession, the waters pile up behind the dams of our conscience. Immense pressure. I'm going to quote Spurgeon twice. I've, I've quoted him in the first sermon. I'm going to quote him again. 
the eminently quotable Spurgeon said it perfectly, better the world on your shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on your heart like David. And if God's hand is heavy upon you, and you don't have to be, have done these capital sins, it can be deceit, it can be dishonesty, it can be unkindness, it can be gossip, it can be anything that you're guilty, uh, guilty of. But may His hand just keep pushing you down until you repent because it is the hand of grace. And then, finally, David uh, says even more that the misery and affliction are capped with lethargy. Second half of verse 4, my strength was dried up by, as by the heat of summer. Um, literally, my life juices were turned into the drought of summer. That's what the Hebrew says. You know, my life juices were turned into the drought of summer. His whole life was sucked of its energy. Entropy gripped his guilt-ridden existence. He didn't feel like moving living had become an effort under that guilt. I have to say, isn't guilt wonderful? An inner howl, wasting bones, crushing afflictions, a troubled life, life juices gone, a leaden soul. What does it say in the margin? Silah. We had to pause and think about that. Maybe when the psalmist did it, there was a musical interlude. You could think about it. Music's playing. No, actually, guilt is a wonderful thing. Now, I want to say, not false guilt like the destructive guilt of feeling responsible for your parents' divorce. People carry that kind of thing, false guilt. Or for not being an all-American, all five feet, one of you, 130 pounds. Or falling short of your family's expectations. Or getting a C in chemistry. Not false guilt, not projected guilt, not self-imposed guilt. But what I want to say is what a gift real theological guilt is for real sin. That's a gift. Guilt is a gift. And what a grace, then, is the guilty roar on the other side of silence, the heavy hand of guilt, guilt-ridden entropy where you can hardly move. Gracious misery calls you to God. And I want to say, if you are living with unconfessed sin, of various sorts, and you, you haven't done it, you've been living at it, if you're truly one of His, it will be your, it'll be your state until you repent. Prepare to be miserable and afflicted and evacuate. I'm talking to believers. Good guilt, gracious guilt. Well, after that first Salah, David goes on and records the final thought in his biographical sketch, because it's one to five, with a dramatic account of what happened in his confession. 
He says in verse 5, this is what happened to me. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here it is, brothers and sisters. In an instant, it's gone. You know, there are some things that must happen slowly, and there are some that must happen at once. Confession is now. And confession brings absolution now. Note the immediacy in King David's life when he finally confessed. This is, this is from 2 Samuel 12, 13, when, David, when Nathan said, you're the man. David said, I said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. Confession, boom, forgiveness. Just like that. Because God the Father is quick to pardon us just as the prodigal son's father did when he interrupted his confession to assure him of his forgiveness and acceptance. Luke 15, 19 to 23. That is something to think about. Immediate complete forgiveness. What's it say in the margin? Salah. Think about it. Because this is what you need to think about if you have unconfessed sin. Forgiveness is only a millisecond away for every person here this morning. Your groanings can be turned into hymns in an instant. Your real guilt the guilt of my sin, as, as David called it, can be forgiven in the blink of an eye. So that Silah is as joyous as the Silah at the end of verse 4 is somber. The reality. Now, that, that's, the first, that's the biographical part of it. How much time do we have? We finish, you said? All right. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, what happens, you switch from his personal account, the biography of the king, to his experience in this ringing challenge, verse 6. You see the challenge. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, that is to God, at a time when he may, you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So you've got this, he calls you to immediacy. We're to pray while God can be found. It can't be put off too long or hardness will set in. Uh, New Testament, Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, so you don't get hard. And then uh, in verse 15, following verse 13 in Hebrews 3.13, adds a quotation from Psalm 95, 7 and 8 to make the point. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts. I mean, if, if you're being spoken to, confession is now, even while you're sitting there, or certainly by the time you go home. Scriptures know no other time. 
And if you do, the coming waters of life, the chastening deluge, the ultimate judgment will not overtake you because confession is now. Wow. Well, David, the psalmist, is so transported by the reality of what he is saying here in the psalm that he interrupts the challenging tone with a shout of praise to God. goes totally vertical in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. See, far from trying to hide his sins from God, David now found God to be a hiding place. He's trying to hide his sins. Now God's his hiding place. And, and his sense is being surrounded by a circle of people singing or shouting songs of deliverance. Again, the inimitable, quotable Spurgeon, this Victorian imagination. He says, the man is encircled by song, surrounded by dancing mercies, all of them proclaiming triumphs of grace. There's no breach in the circle. It completely surrounds him on all sides. He hears music. Before him, hope sounds the cymbals. Behind him, gratitude beats the timbrel. Right and left, above and beneath, the air resounds with joy. All this for the very man who a few minutes ago was roaring all the day long. What a great change. What wonders grace has done and can still do. This is how the stubborn soul that finally confesses feels. Now, let me be very effective and touchy-feely right now. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever, because of sin, unconfessed sin, felt yourself wasting away in miserable silence and your soul groaning inside of you? Have you ever felt God's heavy hand upon you and press you down so that your strength is gone? You ever felt like that? And then confess and felt your sin forgiven and your soul surrounded by songs of deliverance? You ever felt it? You want to feel that reality? Well, you can right now if you confess your sin. Selah. Think about it. And then uh, David uh, moves with a warning, and the warning uh, picks up. It's a warning from God. It's not a warning from David. It is a warning from God in the first person. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is God speaking. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The image that God warns against is that of a stubborn animal. Don't be like an obstinate, stubborn mule or horse. 
David had been like an animal, first like a wild, stubborn horse in his stampede into sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then a stubborn mule in his brainless refusal to acknowledge his sin. So let the stubborn sinner beware. If you're being stubborn, if you're hearing this and resisting it, if he does not if, that, if you do not humble yourself and submit to God, you're going to reach up and discover that you've got a bridle over your snout and the ears are growing out of your head like a horse or a mule. Divine severity. Luther put it this way. He was always quotable. He said, we need not to be treated like mules if there was not so much jackass in us. The Lord says he doesn't want to put a steel bit in anybody's mouth. He doesn't, doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to afflict them with the indignity of a halter. But he will do it if he has to. What a lesson to learn when you are a teenager or in your 20s or 30s. In fact, uh, those that are younger here, I think the older ones may get it, really be getting this, but you need to hear this. And then... You come down to the end. We're getting down to the very end. King David provides a brief two-part summary of the lesson in Psalm 32 and verse 10. He says, first, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Oh, the sorrows. The roar on the other side of silence. The screaming consciences. Audible groans. Bones. The inner frame wasting and crumbling. God's almighty hand pressing and pressing and pressing and weighing heavier and heavier. And then the lethargy of a desiccated soul. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But then the experience of the righteous. But the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And that love is his hesed, his covenantal love surrounds you. You're in the embrace of God's love. And then David ends the way he began. He began rejoicing. He ends rejoicing. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And well we should because David has what he's taught us in Psalm 32 is at the heart of the gospel. Say, how so? King David had broken three of the Ten Commandments outright. He had coveted Bathsheba, another man's wife, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and murdered Uriah. And by virtue of that, he'd broken all the other commandments of doing that. And you know what? The Old Testament sacrificial system made no provision for premeditated sin. It was premeditated sin, the adultery and the murder. There is nothing that he could do. There was nothing. There was no sacrifice that he could offer. There was nothing he could do. And that's why in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he addresses God in that penitential psalm and says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it, but I can't. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
Then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. His case was hopeless. There was nothing he could do but cast himself on God's mercy, which he did and was forgiven. And that's what he celebrates in the opening verses of Psalm 32. And that is why... Paul quoted Psalm 32, 1 and 2 in Romans 4, 6 through 8 to show that David was saved by faith alone and trust in God. And this is, I'm, I'm quoting now Romans 4, 6 through 8, which quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So Paul calls David blessed, and David twice calls himself blessed in Romans 4 because there was no work that could possibly atone for his sins. He was saved by faith alone, trusting in God. Therefore, to all people who labor under the roar and desiccating heat of their own sins, the blessing of forgiveness and the shouts of deliverance are available through faith alone. And this is my gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was resurrected on the third day according to Scripture. That is my hope. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. 